0: Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Bismillah, uh, alhamdulillah, wa wa ala rasulillah wa alihi wa sahbihi wa man So we're back now, the academic year has begun again. Uh, and we've decided to resume as our topic for these uh, uh, occasional Saturday morning uh, encounters. Uh, The bio-data focused approach that seemed to go down quite well last time, ours is an age perhaps of celebrities, personalities, it's easier to relate to ideas when incarnated in human beings, so rather than give you anything too abstract and conceptual, uh, I thought I'd uh, indicate what is after all the Islamic principle of Mu'amala, that uh, ideas, concepts, Values, principles make sense and are most humanly osmotic when represented to us in other human beings. So uh, uh, we're going to begin by rewinding uh, to one of the lectures which we gave uh, in the previous academic year. You'll recall the topic was uh, the subject of Hazrat Nizamuddin Auliya the great uh, patron saint of uh, the city of Delhi not because I want to retell that story but just to try and help us to consider uh, how things have changed and how things have not changed that was the 14th century by 1325 and became really the great uh, unleasher of (coughs) the primary energies of uh, muaynadine chishti subsequently and made the tariqa a, a mass movement an engine of islamization and <coughs> conversion you'll recall that at the age of 23 he became the khalifa of baba farid uh, and uh, who was separated by only one name bakhti arkaki from muaynadine of chishti ajmer himself so a very high Sanad and becomes this incredible powerhouse of Islamization, And he is uh, generally regarded as the founder of the Nizami branch of the Chishtia. But there's another one, which in so many British mosques is better known, uh, which is the Sabari branch. If you look at those picturesque posters in the Brelvi mosques in particular for the next Milad Sharif, or some orf, you'll see that it's the uh, Saberia who tend to prevail with a particular presence in uh, Kashmir, Mirpur, and those places. <coughs> and the Saberis come from another branch from Babri, Fareed Maulana Allah Edin Sabir, Sabir, not actually his name, but a uh, eponym, just means patient, a person with sabr, because of various uh, feats of. Uh, endurance and Zohud that he represented during his uh, lifetime. And his mother was actually Baba Farid's elder sister, a lady by the name of Jamila, so there's a genealogy there. And his famous, as an example of his sabr, they still tell you the story today, uh, that even though he was entrusted by Baba Farid, to look after the, the langar, the place where everybody would be fed and the poor would be accommodated at, at, at the derga. He was in charge of for 11 years, but thought it was not appropriate that he should eat from this food himself because it was food for, for sadaqa. And so after serving everybody, the usual scene of enormous cauldrons of rice and ghee, and uh, he would, uh, after cleaning up, he would go off into the nearby sort of forest and wilderness area. Middle Ages, so much of India was, uh, Uncultivated, and find some roots and berries on which he nourished himself for uh, 11 years. It's an example of the uh, principle of wara, of scrupulousness, that the ulama tend to maintain in not eating from the income of auqaf and that which is destined for the poor. So this is the uh, principle of uh, the Chishtia sabiriya and it continues. Uh, to be a principle to this day. So we now fast forward to see how this tariqa engages with the new environment of uh, colonial India. The end of the Delhi Sultans and then the decline of the Mughals. Uh, the first Indian War of Independence, the so-called mutiny, 1857, and the very hard questions posed to the ulama and the Sufis across the course of the 19th century regarding the relationship to this new non-Muslim polity uh, with its uh, unheralded uh, military and infrastructural prowess. Uh, How could these ancient saintly traditions, uh, these ways of holiness, actually fit in what was nominally a Christian, but in practice a kind of materialistic, pragmatic, imperial colonial reality. How uh, could this face-off actually um, develop? So we fast forward to Saharanpur, central India, Uh, 1814 uh, is the birth of somebody called Imdadullah Muhajir Makki, who is a kind of name to be conjured with in Deobandi and Proto-Deobandi circles to this day, who represents uh, a latter-day instantiation of this Chishti Sabiri principle, uh, including lives in the forest for six months just for his ibadah and his Zuhud, and then conceives a great uh, longing for the city of Medina, and finds his way on a pilgrim ship. One of the ironies of British rule is that it's actually easier to be connected to the Haramain now than it it used to be. Uh, And then in the first Indian War of Independence, 1857, uh, he leads an army against the British and is briefly victorious, uh, and then finds himself uh, persecuted and exiled to the Uh, Hejaz, and lots of stories are told about him, and he's also very representative of this tradition. For instance, he maintains the Olamas tradition of marrying people who are in need rather than our current uh, sort of checklist approach. She has to have this kind of complexion, and she has to have a PhD, and she has to be blah, blah, blah. Otherwise, our ego is not satisfied. Uh, It's a custom of the ulama, and you find this in Ibn Hajar and some of the medieval Middle Eastern... uh, ulama as well to look for people who are needy. So his wife is a blind widow, and he he cares for her. And this becomes uh, one of the traditions of the tariqa. So he he dies at the end of the 19th century, still in the Ottoman period, and is buried at the Mualla, which is the big cemetery in Makkah. Generally, in the subcontinent, you find quite often people call themselves maki or madani. They like titles. This doesn't really necessarily mean that they spent a lot of their lives in those places. It's more an indication of uh, what they would call an ishtiaq, in other words, a particular spiritual connection. You have a great longing, a particular sense that you need to be in Mecca or Medina. Uh, and therefore, that spiritual uh, allegiance, you know, that affinity is what is generally alluded to by these uh, uh, by these monikers. So he works, writes a uh, tafsir of the Iqlil al-Qur'an But mostly, Haji Imdadullah is famous for producing uh, an outpouring of amazing Persian poetry and commentaries on the great Persian Sufi poets. Yes, one of the great commentaries on the Masnavi of Maulana Rumi, for instance. So somebody who is already a completely traditional Persianate subcontinental Alim, but is having to deal with the British and is riding steamers to the Haramein and is straddling the two worlds. in many ways, that east-west dichotomy was more intense for people in the 19th century than it is for us today because we're already so westernized. Look at the way we're dressing and we eat pizza. and uh, We're already kind of hybrid creatures. But back then, it was a much more intense and absolute thing and it was experienced as such, not just by the Indians but by the British as well. It was two worlds and how you uh, inhabit or cohabit with two worlds uh, was... One of the big questions for the ulama really across the ummah. One of his uh, leading disciples was uh, Maulana Rashid Gangohi, again a favorite for the uh, nostalgics of the Deobandi tradition, uh, also from Saharanpur, uh, and along with somebody called Maulana Qasim Nanawutbi, they are both Mureeds of Haji Imdadullah, so they're from this Chishti Sabri Tariqah, and together they are generally regarded as the co authors. Of Darul Uloom Deoband. Um, So Gangorhi becomes the first director, uh, and also the sister college, Mazahirul Uloom in Saharanpur, which is kind of from the same period and has the same orientation. Um, And he dies a little bit later in 1905 uh, and remains in India. Uh, so Deoband, obviously one of the major uh, transformations in the intellectual infrastructure of uh, the subcontinent in the 19th century. And what's really going on there is that they see the inevitability of uh, British power. Uh, they have decided not to leave, to go to those few Muslim places that are still uh, independent, Afghanistan, the Ottoman Empire, wherever. They're going to try and hang on in order to reform the Muslims. Um, Later on, the Tablighi Jama'at movement comes out of the same kind of circle and mentality. Um, But uh, to create networks of scholars in a more formal way than had been normal beforehand. Most of Islamic history, madrasas, are kind of founded by some local bey or prince and he brings somebody to teach there, or the scholar founds it and gets an endowment. It's very local, it's not really networked with anything or anyone else, with a few exceptions. But in the uh, 19th century world, where India is kind of being united by railways, telegraph, post offices and things, Uh, these Deobandi scholars decide they're going to create a centre, which will then create sub-centres all over the subcontinent with a view to stiffening the fibre of the Muslims so that they retain loyal to their traditions in the face of um, the difficulties of uh, living under uh, British rule. So that takes us up to the 19th century, but the individual I want to speak about mostly today uh, is their disciple and somebody of whom some people today in India still have a living memory. Uh, and this is Maulana Hussain Ahmed Madani, uh, who in many ways was the one who kind of kept his hand on the tiller of Deoband and some other institutions in India in the mayhem after um, uh, partition. Uh, so he's, whereas Hadi Ibn Dadullah and the earlier ones were dealing with the fact of the British coming to India, In the mid-20th century, the ulama having to deal with the fact of the British leaving India and Hindu domination in the context of a new nation-state democracy, uh, Hindu chauvinism, and all of those other challenges. So, uh, again, a major transformation and a test of their claim that in their uh, manhaj of teaching in the understanding of fiqh, the Hanafi fiqh, the Maturidi doctrine, this chishti silsila, there is an optimal way of being that will adequately guide the Muslims morally and politically through these sort of, uh, transformations, which, you know, obviously, somebody like Baba Farid and Muayyena Deen Chishti did not have to um, confront. So Malana Hossein uh, Ahmed Madni born 1877. So this is after the mutinies, when the Raj is really in its full, uh, full power and grandeur. Um, Uh, His family are poor, but they have a memory of having seen service civil servants under the Mughals and then under the Nawabs of Ord, which is one of the earlier princely states, one that was displaced by uh, the British. (coughs) After the 1857 uh, revolt, (coughs) the British decided to cement their power by introducing something more resembling really a feudal system, creating large, landowners, uh, zamindars, talukdars, and dispossessing the smaller um, landowners and o- owners of individual plots. And they would give these large estates to people, uh, native people, who they uh, regarded as being loyal, pro-British sympathizers. <coughs> so uh, the uh, father of Maulana Hussein is called Maulana Habibullah. Uh, has a connection to Deoband, and is also really mainly known as a kind of Sufi peer and as a healer. One of the functions of the traditional Sufi murshid or sheikh is to, to heal people. Um, and in the subcontinent, they have indigenous traditions of medicine, not just prophetic medicine, but Yunani medicine and so forth. And he was famous for this. And in particular, he was known as somebody who would vicariously heal In other words, you went to him with a bad shoulder, and somehow the bad shoulder would be transmuted into the shoulder of Maulana Habibullah, and you'd feel fine, and he'd then have to deal with it in his own self, with exercises and so forth. And there would be infectious diseases as well as physical, uh, physiological ailments. So he's from that really very medieval world. In the city of Faizabad, which is the old capital of the Noobs of Ord, which is right across the river from Ayodhya, of course, which is a flashpoint. Then it was a mainly Muslim town. The 1992 demolition of the Babri Masjid there in many ways triggered the the visible militancy of Hindu chauvinism in India. (coughs) Uh, A very diverse place. (coughs) Big Hindu festivals all the time. Lots of Shi'i communities in that part of of India, with the Imam Baras everywhere and the um, Muharram rituals. So a very kind of pluralistic place with a slight Muslim majority, but basically it's cosmopolitan uh, India with everybody uh, being neighbors to everyone, with uh, often tensions as well as conviviality. So Maulana Habibullah uh, has five sons. And he wants them all not to go to the British schools or the missionary schools or reformist schools, but to have a traditional Deobandi type education. Hossein was the one who liked to play most. So his father actually sent him away to Deoband to, to board there to become a, a Molvi. Um, and uh, th- in those days in Deoband, it was normal for the students to stay in the houses of the scholars. Uh, they didn't really have a dormitory system at that time, so there was a strong. Uh, kind of father-son relationship that that developed between uh, teachers and students. Uh, The particular ideology of the Deobandis then really is just classical mainstream Sunni Islam. Uh, It has nothing to do with uh, reformism as such. Uh, we nowadays tend to think of the sort of besetting ill of the subcontinent and of many British mosques as being the Braille v. Deobandi dispute. So somebody builds a Deobandi mosque and then five years later there's sure to be a Braille v. mosque that is slightly bigger on the same street and then it's kind of crazy stupidity. <coughs> uh, and they say, oh, the, the Braille vies, the Sufis and the Deobandis are kind of... Puritanical, but uh, there have been some evolutions amongst some deobandis uh, reactive uh, relations with Ahl al Hadith in India. Uh, but in this 19th century period, in the period when Hossein Ahmad Madani is, he becomes the rector, principal of Darul Uloom deoband after partition, <coughs> that uh, the, uh, uh, the the dispute is not really are you a sufi are you not a sufi because everybody's a sufi apart from small groups of ahl hadith who have no clout at all but it's really to do with certain issues uh, over the state of people in the grave and relatedly how you commemorate the Mawlid. now if you talk to classically oriented scholars in most parts of the islamic world they say well everybody knows that These are matters that cannot be decisively known, and therefore there's in this. I remember when I was a student in Cairo at the Azhar, we had the first British alum graduates turned up. Um, And the Indian students were amazed by them, because Indian students were wearing jeans at the Azhar. And the British Muslim students were in the kind of traditional pyjama thing, Uh, very counterintuitive. And then the Brailvis were there, and would they pray together, and this and that. And so we went to some of the Azhari ulama, and they hammered out the issues that were between them. Said, well, these are just masail khilafiyya ja'iza. These are permissible points of dispute, because when it comes to how conscious somebody is in the barzakh, whether they can hear you, whether they can pray for you, these are issues which are not decisively resolved in Qur'an and Hadith and the ulama have taken different views and it's like that's like a dream world and it's difficult for us in this world really to conceptualize it so so in the end neither the Obandis nor the Braillebeers were happy with the Ansari scholars recommendation I guess they wanted something a bit more uh, polarizing but this in the 19th century this became a very big Disputational matter and even affected some of the politics uh, and the boundary drawing of partition. But the thing to bear in mind is that they take themselves to be simply the inheritors of a Sufi tradition, and the Chishti Sabari traditions is in many ways quite an ecstatic devotional tradition. Um, The Naqshbandis tend to be historically a bit more um, uh, sober. But in any case, individuals impose their own stamp on these as much as tradition. So he's been sent by Molana Habibulot to study in Delband. Um, so let me just see if we can find a reminiscence here rather than just having my voice for the next hour. One of the advantages about studying Hossein Ahmed is that he writes lots of kind of autobiographical, Tezkeller-type works about his experience in different places. So we can reconstruct his early life quite quite, uh, easily. Here he says later on, I never had much enthusiasm for study and would not study thoroughly or do much to review my books. As far as the beginning books, on which there was only an oral exam, I did well, but not so well in the later written ones. I failed three of six in the first year. The night before the exam, I would study the whole book and sleep only an hour or less. To stay awake, I would prepare salty tea, and whenever I felt sleepy, drink the tea, and thus keep off the sleepiness for an hour or two. For I always needed much sleep, and I especially feel sleepy when reading. (laughs) After I failed my exams for the first time, alhamdulillah, I did not fail again, and within my class, I often attained good marks. Darul Ulum Dauban's exams from the beginning were made difficult, whether oral or written. When a student of the Darul Ulum entered government institutions or did exams after completing English classes, they were always the most distinguished. <coughs> Although I was always unenthusiastic and shrank from any kind of work and sacrifice, thank Allah, gradually both my intellectual inclination and balance of character grew. At the very beginning, my interest was in logic and philosophy and in literature and hadith. So. Uh, You get a sense that he kind of seems to be an ordinary type of student, and nobody could have guessed at that point that he'd end up being the head of the Jammuat Olami Hind, and one of the most uh, uh, prolific authors, as well as campaigners for um, Indian independence uh, later on. He's just an ordinary boy from uh, a small town. (coughs) So in the midst of this, he gets a message from his father, who has experienced what they call a jadba. In other words, an inner overwhelming yearning to go and live in one of the holy cities. He wants to go and live in Medina. So the whole family uh, are to move. And he ends his studies in deoband And before he leaves, he takes a formal bayah with Maulana Rashid Gangohi, who we saw was the great disciple of Haji Imdadullah. So he's got his bayat, but as an alim, he's still not half. his, he's still on the way. So in 1898, the whole family move. And one of the advantages of going to the uh, Hijaz is that Haji Imdadullah, who led the army in the mutiny, is still in Makkah, and they're able to sit at his feet. He's really old, but um, that's an opportunity for them to engage. They go to Makkah, uh, and then they head for Medina, which in those days is like a two-week journey. Now, they built a high-speed train, which is a bit of a strange thing to build for pilgrims when you think about it. So the old thing was to sit on your camel or your mule, and you would study, you would talk to people, you would look at the... You would be prepared spiritually, for leaving your worldly things and to enter the holy city. It was a form of respect for the... Um, Sha'air, but now it's a high-speed train. 200 miles an hour, i got to... Well, oh, funny. So uh, four days out from Makkah, uh, he has a dream in which he sees the Holy Prophet, <laughs> and for the ulama, this is always its a true dream. So he sees the Holy Prophet, and he falls at his feet and asks him to pray for him to be a better student so that he will remember what he learns, and understand everything that he reads. And this is granted. He was, I guess, about 21 at the time. In Medina, things with the Indian family are hard. Um, they start by opening a little shop, but it doesn't work too well. Close after about a year. So Josey Ahmed Madani has to find work just doing a bit of tutoring or working as a copyist, writing out people's marriage certificates and things like that. Uh, and they actually build their own house with sort of lumps of rock and, uh, and rammed clay. So they're living in considerable indigence. <coughs> but they're uh, in Medina now, Madanis. <coughs> in 1900, he gets a letter from India. Moulin Rashid Gangohi is inviting him. Says he's missing him and wants him to visit. Not so easy uh, the journey back then, uh, even though there's, there's always been a connection between India and Arabia, because you know they 're not so far. You take the boat from Bombay and then via Aden and then up the Red Sea, but still, if you have to work your passage, uh, it can take uh, weeks and weeks. <coughs> so he comes to uh, Delhi. Uh, and then Deoband, and then he goes to see his teacher in this town, Gangor, which is about 25 miles, and um, he walks. <coughs> and it's a famous walk in that he's said to have been crying the whole way, because he feels bad about meeting his teacher, and having to say, I just found work as a copyist and selling little books in Medina, and I'm still not a Hafiz, and I'm still not uh, following your instructions. Uh, but when he gets to the Derga and spends some time there, uh, Maulana uh, Rashid winds his own turban around his head, which is unmistakably a traditional uh, sign of investiture and permission. Uh, and then he visits various mazars. He goes to a famous Chishti uh, mazar, And then, having spent uh, several months in India, goes back to Medina. So this is obviously why Marlana has invited him because he recognizes that he is to be a successor, which seems strange. He's only a a kid, really, uh, in a culture that validates uh, age and and, and dignity. But the surprising thing has happened. So in Medina, he goes back and immediately starts to have dreams. And he actually writes down and describes some of these. There's 18 that he records. and very often he would see, see dreams in which the Holy Prophet والسلام, or Ibrahim or Maulana, Rashid uh, or Haji uh, Imdadullah would give him something to eat, dates or milk or something sustaining. Now in those days, Makkah and Medina were not what they are now uh, in that they were full of little madrasas and libraries. I read an article which uh, listed the 30 libraries that used to exist in Medina. Uh, until the mid-20th century. Uh, It was the case in the Ottoman Empire, in particular for statesmen, uh, to go uh, to Medina as a kind of retirement place. And in England, you retire to the Bahamas or Margate or something, but the Ottomans, (laughs) Medina, of course, in the hope of being buried there. And very often, these moneyed pashas would do something positive like endow a library or a house for the, the Hajjis or a little hospital. So there was quite an elaborate uh, infrastructure there. Uh, so it's a good place for students and always has been. And one of the reasons why the, the Haramain have been particularly critical in intellectual exchange in Islam is that, if you can imagine before, jet aircraft or trains or uh, steamships Uh, The Hajj, which was your obligation, had to be very carefully thought out because to get there from West Africa or Indonesia or Samarkand or somewhere, you had to make sure that you got there well in advance because if you missed Arafat, you have to wait till the next year. There's no way of, if you missed Arafat, that's it. So people will get there well in advance and as the months drew uh, particularly from Ramadan to the Hajj, the Haramein were like university towns and there would be great ulama from everywhere um, engaging. Uh, and also the smaller madrasas would be really busy. And uh, nowadays, what do they do? The Mervan Pick in Medina, you look out and there's the Haram and it's kind of interesting to see people walking around, I guess. But there's a great big TV and a picture by Toulouse-Lautrec on the wall and it's kind of space out entertainment culture but back then it wasn't like that it was an opportunity really to to turn around to improve yourself to be in circles of dhikr to visit the madrasas to enjoy the sohbah of the show it was an amazing experience that was really part of your 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 visit to the the haramein and of course uh, jerusalem was fully integrated into all of this uh, at the same time so his Uh, Teaching, and starts to teach very hard, he uh, becomes a a teacher at something called the Madrasa Shamsiya, which is one of the big um, Ottoman-founded madrasas in Medina. Uh, And he's known for teaching without notes, because he prepares at night um, from Fajr until Aisha, and then sometimes afterwards and later in life. uh, His practice was to teach Bukhari after Aisha, he was be at his most active then it would be a three-hour class every night so quite hard for the young students but he was um, full of energy for it Uh, and he also taught in the haram nowadays you don't see that because the model now is for people to go to and medina to do their ibadah and to go to burger king and to buy a bottle of perfume and a leaky bottle of zamzam and off you go (laughs) but then uh, it wasn't just the libraries and the, the madrasas, but uh, the harem itself, not just the other madrasas, but the harem itself, every column had a scholar sitting and uh, talking, uh, talking. Nobody was controlling it. There was nobody in charge of it. Anybody with an ijazah, because if you started just talking and you couldn't show that some well-known alim had authorised you, um, nobody would want to listen. It was a kind of self-selecting process that it was a truly amazing place and particularly in the days before electricity because during the day you know it's hot people have a long siesta but at night you know, when the uh, uh tawashi would come out and light all of the olive oil lamps in the haram in makkah uh, it was a truly amazing and magical spectacle and the sound of quran and people studying everywhere it was uh, very reverent and very uh, intense and, and astonishing so here's part of uh, of that and he's a teacher and is certainly respected uh, by this time his Arabic is really amazing and later on some of the arguments in his uh, uh, polemics about partition ref- relate to the fact that uh, supposedly he doesn't understand Arabic words properly Iqbal accuses him of this in Iqbal's Arabic it was probably a little bit uh, questionable but he, he is a master of the Arabic language so uh, in 1909, uh, he goes back to India. His wife has died in, in Medina, and he marries again. Uh, spends some time in uh, Deoband and uh, uh, refreshes his knowledge of hadith under somebody called Mahmoud al-Hassan, who is the, the great hadith scholar in Deoband at the time. Uh, Molana Mahmoud al-Hassan uh, then goes to uh, the Hejaz and Moulana Hussein goes back as well. There's a lot of toing and froing, And then in 1914, the Great War begins. And this is immediately a problem for any British subject in the Holy Cities because the Holy Cities are part of the Ottoman Empire, which is at war with the British Empire. So a huge problem. The Turks don't make difficulties for them, even though technically they're enemy aliens. But they just continue teaching, and nobody really cares. And Khalid Pasha, who is the, the governor of the Hejaz, actually goes out of his way to make sure that um, uh, the scholars are not interfered with. But uh, the Ottoman Empire is really no match for the British Empire on one side and the Russians on the other, and. Uh, on a visit to Mecca in 1916, uh, the Arab revolt takes place, Lawrence of Arabia and the Sharif Hussein and uh, all of that uh, romantic nonsense, which was basically just a piece of imperial uh, manipulation and mischief-making, after the British had failed so catastrophically at Gallipoli quarter of a million men died or felt with casualties on either side the the biggest ever defeat the British Empire suffered really was by the so-called sick man of Europe in in, in the Dardanelles Churchill's greatest greatest, uh, debacle so uh, the idea was to uh, weaken the Ottoman Empire by trying to uh, detach the Arabs from their loyalties to the uh, Sultan Caliph in Constantinople that had already been done successfully in the 19th century to detach the Balkan provinces which as we saw at the Ebu Saud lecture were really considered to be the heartlands of the Ottoman Empire by the Ottomans themselves but with the uh, Balkan Wars in 1912 Albania went what's now Macedonia went uh, southern Montenegro western Thrace and there's just a little kind of amputated stump of Turkey in Europe which is still there um, but it's not uh, on the borders of Austria any longer. It's, it's small. So they wanted to do the same thing to the Arab provinces. The trouble was that the Arabs weren't really nationalist, unlike the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Albanians and the Greeks and the others, uh, because they were thinking in more specifically religious terms. They remembered the Crusades unhappily. And... Uh, the Sultan Caliph, particularly Sultan Abdul Hamid, were really popular in the Arab world. Abdul Hamid did a lot for the, the Haramein. He built the Hejaz uh, Railway. Uh, and nobody saw any point in rebelling. So the British eventually had to bribe a few tribesmen. No Arabs ever uh, defected from the Ottoman army to go over to the side of the British or the, the Arab uh, rebels. Uh, the Arabs in the Ottoman army were completely loyal and also fought at Gallipoli, incidentally, and on Enver Pasha's uh, mission into the Caucasus, which wasn't a great success. Uh, so they just saw themselves as Ottomans. So for the British, this was a problem. So they managed to get the Sharif Hussein in Makkah uh, with a promise of sovereignty after the war, I told him, uh, Sun is set on the Empire of the Turks, now it's going to be an Arab kingdom under our tutelage, uh, whether you like it or not, uh, and we'll make you king of Arabia, and we'll probably make you Khalifa. The Khalifa should be an Arab anyway, as long as you throw off your allegiance to the the Turks. And the Sharif Hussein bought this. Uh, And with the help of Lawrence of Arabia and the Arab Bureau in Cairo and British gold, uh, they uh, managed to get Makkah to secede from the Khilafah, which is a fairly extreme thing. Uh, (coughs) So this is going on, and clearly the uh, situation of British subjects in the holy cities is an increasingly precarious one, because they were British subjects living under the enemy Ottomans, and now they're British subjects, but the British are pulling the strings behind this new, rather ghostly, Kingdom of the Hejaz, uh, and indeed uh, in 1916 uh, the group of scholars, Malan and mahmud al-Hassan and Hossein Ahmed Madni, are arrested by order of the, uh, the Sharif of Mecca. Now the British have, in the Arab Bureau in Cairo have drafted a fatwa in which they declare that the Ottomans are kafir and that it's an obligation for Muslims to fight against the Ottoman Empire um, in the interests of uh, the uh, the British King Emperor. And the ulama everywhere in the British Empire are being pressed to sign this strange fatwa, which is endorsed in Mecca by an obscure scholar who has now been made the Sheikh al-Islam. The real Sheikh al-Islam, of course, is still in Constantinople. But this scholar who is... Uh, uh, rather terrified of the Sharif Hussein is going around getting everybody in Mecca to sign this thing saying the Turks are Kafirs and the British are protectors of, of true religion and then uh, he comes to where, the place where Maulana Mahmoud Hassan and Hussein Ahmad Madni are staying and says well, you have to sign this thing, the Turks are kuffar and they say and they have to be evasive because um, the consequences could be Disastrous. They say, well, this is just for the ulama of Makkah, and we've got nothing to do with this. We're from India. This is not our document. So he comes back the next day, and it's got the same fatwa, but the words and the Turks of kafir have kind of disappeared, hoping that this will be more acceptable. But they still won't sign it. And so uh, with the orders of the, the British uh, pilgrim officer in Jeddah, uh, certain Colonel Wilson, they are arrested and put on mules and taken to Jeddah uh, accused of uh, plotting with the Ottomans because in Medina they've been hanging out with um, Khalid Pasha and some of the Ottoman statesmen there and um, it seems pretty obvious that they've been consorting with the enemy. So uh, the, uh, uh, the times are very tense and this of course is a a traumatic and, and horrible experience for the, the Olamat. Um, so uh, they're taken to Jeddah under guard, and we have to ask ourselves why the British are doing this. Did they really believe that these Indian ulama were in cahoots with the Ottomans and trying to stir up sedition? Well, of course, the relations between the ulama and the British had always been uncomfortable since the, the Muslims basically took the lead in the First Indian War of Independence in uh, 1857. And uh, a lot of the scholars, such um, as Haidri Imdadullah himself, were associated with that. And that Chishti Sabri line that ended up uh, becoming very organized in Deoband was obviously subject to some British colonial. Suspicion, even though Deoband was not political, but there was one alim, a Maulana Ubaidullah Sindhi, who was an interesting person, um, who was actually a Sikh convert in his teenage years. He converted to Islam but managed to become a, uh, an <coughs> alim at Deoband. Organized some of the Deoband graduates uh, into something called the, uh, the Jama'at al Ansar. Uh, which, again, was not really political or explicitly anti-British, but clearly was some kind of mobilized uh, group. Uh, and uh, Maulana and Mahmoud al-Hassan had a close relationship with him and was constantly corresponding with him. So we have Obaidullah uh, Sindhi during the First World War, uh, goes to the Northwest frontier province, all of those seven-foot-tall frowning Pashtuns to try and foment a rebellion against the British. They're always rebelling against everybody and against each other, but this is to be a jihad against the British, specifically uh, in order to establish an independent India, to meet up with Muslims in uh, Central Asia, who will then uh, rise up against the Tsar because Russia is in disarray. Uh, and uh, <coughs> he writes a letter to Mahmoud al-Hassan, telling him what he's doing and asking for his support. Now, the British, through a spy, intercept the letter, which is written on silk to make it easy to, to hide. And, and this is called the Silk Letter Conspiracy, which is one of the episodes of um, the British Raj in India. Uh, And as a result, Mahmoud al-Hassan immediately comes under suspicion, which seems to be why the British have had him um, led away uh, under arrest with whoever happens to be in his house at the time. Um, Now, this starts to politicize them a lot more, because it's very obvious what the British are up to in uh, the Hejaz. The Arabs are still staunchly pro-Ottoman, but these wild tribes have been told that they will get British gold and the right to pillage Damascus. If they fight with Lawrence, it's very transparently a piece of uh, imperial manipulation. And uh, although we think of that period and the parceling up of the Middle East, according to lines of colonial influence, the creation of countries like Lebanon and Jordan, and Iraq, places that had not been countries before, uh, lines that were drawn across the desert by you know, a bunch of men in a smoke-filled room at the, uh, the Palace of Versailles uh, as the, the kind of original sin that has caused the instability of the Middle East. It's also had a big impact in Muslims elsewhere, and particularly in India, in strengthening anti-British feeling. Because it, the, the kind of deceit of it was particularly offensive to Muslim sensibility. On the one hand, the British had written to the Sharif Hossein, mm, promising him that he would be an Arab sovereign, and the Arabs would receive their independence under some kind of vague British imperial supervision, and the French would have Syria. But they'd also signed the secret Sykes-Picot Accords. So Mark Sykes, our former uh, principal here, Um, Muhammad Assad's written a great book about Mark Sykes in that period, where the British and the French had secretly written another agreement saying, no, these silly Arabs aren't going to get any kind of independence. It's just going to be colonial rule. The British will get Iraq and the French will get Syria and Lebanon and uh, uh, file closed. So that kind of uh, deceit was particularly regarded as particularly sleazy and disgraceful, particularly to these kind of... Classical Sufi ulama who really respected men who kept their word. But this was a nasty form of nifaq and did a lot to galvanize what became the Khilafat movement in India, which was one of the currents that moved into uh, the, the campaign against uh, British rule and for Indian independence. So the Hossein uh, Mukman correspondence, which is where the British said, you'll be top dog, and the secret sykes Pico correspondence, where they said, actually, no, if we're just going to take over ourselves. Uh, a very significant documents. If you've seen the film, A Dangerous Man, um, which is basically about uh, the betrayal of the Arabs at uh, the Treaty of Versailles, you'll see uh, that, and they're still really angry about it. I remember once a Jordanian taxi driver saying, you know, we're not really Jordanians. We have to be polite to taxi drivers in the Arab world. Yes. No, we're not Jordanians. It's all sham, you know. It's all sham. Palestine and Lebanon and Syria and all those silly countries. We always used to be together. We speak the same kind of Arabic with the same people. It's uh, just you British who kind of ruined everything. So well, all right. yeah. uh, Probably correct. But the British, of course, thought this is imperial planning. This is going to go on forever. They never really thought that they would be independent countries. But in any case, these are very, very traumatic times. And it's like 100 years ago, and everybody's been commemorating the end of the First World War and the Battle of Verdun, the Last Post, etc., etc. et cetera. But uh, Europe kind of has recovered. But the Middle East, mm, still suffering. You should read David Fromkin's book, A Peace to End All Peace, where he talks about the catastrophes of the map drawing that took place at the Treaty of Versailles. Let's create a place called Yugoslavia, they thought. Mm-hmm. Let's put Albanians in it and Slovenes and Croats and Serbs. You know, they hate each other and Bosnia and Montenegro. It will be the kingdom of Yugoslavia. It's never existed before. And then, of course, when authoritarian rule ends, Tito dies, Milošević takes over, bang. Yes, it's an unreal nation state. And the same happens for so many of those uh, fantasy uh, states that were created at the Treaty of Versailles, Iraq, Let's put the Kurds together with the Sunnis and the Shia and the Turkmen and the Yazidis and the Christians and it's going to be just great it's kind of handy for extracting oil I guess but um, mm. that didn't work so well either in any case uh yeah a century has gone by and we're still suffering you know, the peace to end all peace but for the Indians you know they they could see what a momentously awful thing was being done at these places that had been united under the Khilafah and before that under the Mamluks for a thousand years or more were now going to become Syria and Lebanon and these strange borders. Dividing people and checkpoints everywhere and passports, uh, this, was, this was a monstrosity and really tended to um, exacerbate anti-imperial and anti-British uh, feelings. So the silk letter conspiracy is part of that. People are, are really angry. So. They're under arrest in uh, Jeddah. They don't know where they're going to go, but they assume they're going to be taken to India. But they're not. They're put on a ship and taken to Egypt. They stay in a kind of encampment, a prisoner of war place uh, just outside Cairo. They're interrogated by a tribunal um, where they make the fatal admission that actually the Turkish rule in the Hejaz was a lot better than the Sharif Hussein. Uh, and the verdict on that was that they were disloyal and that they should be interned on the island of Malta, the opposite direction to uh, India. And they're sent with a lot of prisoners of war, um, basically uh, Ottoman loyalists, Ottoman officers uh, and others, civil servants who are going to be interned. Uh, and the sea voyage is somewhat dangerous in submarines and it's, it's wartime. But... Uh, Moulin Hussein Ahmad has a piece of the turban cloth of Haji Imdadullah, tears it up and gives one to each of the members of the, the group um, for tabarrukat uh, in order to um, keep them safe during the sea passage. So he arrives in Malta, and it's a huge prisoner of war camp, about 3,000 prisoners of lots of different nationalities. There's kind of Prussians with monocles as well as sort of Syrian pashas. Everybody is there four layers of barbed wire outside. It's like like cold hits, but really multinational. And uh, the pro-Ottoman Egyptians and uh, Syrians, Lebanese, Palestinians are there as well. So uh, they organize a mosque. They get prison blankets, and they, they create a mosque. And the Syrians, who are real Ottoman patriots, managed to stitch together an Ottoman flag and keep raising it to the annoyance of the british guards uh, and it's the usual situation in any prison where there are interrogations and then spies and stool pigeons and petitions are coming from india because these are like the best-known muslim scholars in india so people are writing to the british saying you can't arrest you know, our, our maulanas his father is uh, habib Moulana. habibullah of course is still in medina eking out a living uh, when the uh, the sharif hussein's forces after the, the siege of medina which is a very uh, kind of heroic event and the, the last train to leave medina railway station going north when the sharif hussein's forces are uh, besieging the city it has uh, they take the, the relics of the, the, the prophet's mosque with them, the, the Prophet's sword and his turban, and uh, the Athar and the cat that have always been kept in the, in the Haram in Medina, taken up, and everybody's weeping. And of course, they're still in, in Istanbul to this day, where you can see them. Um, that siege is, is uh, something worth reading about. But the Sharif Hussein's forces take over, and so Molana Habibullah is arrested. Mm-hmm. But he's, uh, he's he's arrested by the Turks, that's right, um, as a British subject uh, under suspicion and is taken off to Edirne in European Turkey um, where he dies and the news gets to uh Hossein uh, Madani in Malta and, of course, is greatly affected uh, by this. But by this time, the Hejaz has been taken, Palestine has been taken, the two battles of Gaza, the first when uh, the... Uh, Ottomans are victorious. And then uh, when they're defeated and from that time, really, Gaza, which used to be you know, just an ordinary Syrian sleepy place, has become uh, one of the great tragedy zones on Earth. And somehow these, these olamat, the Muslims who saw the collapse of this ancient traditional order, uh, somehow intuited the, the human catastrophes that were to come. And in our time, it still goes on. Look at the governability of Syria and Iraq and uh, It's all from that period. Uh, Iraq under the Ottomans for 400 years didn't have a single major episode of sectarian conflict. Not one. The Ottoman sultans used to send purses of gold to endow the Shii shrines at at, at Karbala and Najaf. And the Khazamein, that was just kind of normal. Uh, They were just neighbors. uh, and now look at it. So there was something of an intuition in many Muslim souls at the time that some kind of great darkness is coming. Uh, so uh, uh, Maulana, uh, Maulana is working away, uh, Mahmoud al Hassan, uh, and they have access to pen and paper. So this is where uh, Maulana Hussein uh, Madani completes his great commentary on Bukhari, which is a very uh, monumental work uh but they do a lot of dhikr and they have a very holy presence so uh the british guards when they go past them couldn't stop taking their hats off to them which is not prison regulations at all you don't find a guard in strange ways sort of taking his hat off to a particular prison, unless it's a mafia boss who can threaten him (laughs) but just out of respect for a prisoner doesn't the prison environment isn't like that sometimes the british guards would even bow to a (laughs) man Hussein Ahmed, uh, because holiness has an effect. You know, the people have an extraordinary charisma. Uh, and some of the Syrian uh, prisoners there, mostly from the Ottoman Navy, uh, took Bay'ah with him, and the tariqa started to spread in Syria. So we have another... Um, let's listen to his words again... Materialized. Here we are. We actually have uh, a book, Asirani Malta, it's in Urdu, but there's an English translation. We have it in the CMC library upstairs, which is a very detailed account in a kind of traditional (laughs) fada'il or manaqib genre. It's like his miracles and the people who converted at his hands, and it's a a spiritual uh, prison diary. So um, later on, Mawlana Hussain Ahmad, writing about his teacher, wrote this. In short, the truth of the matter is that Mawlana Mahmud al-Hassan, in his whole life, had never had such an opportunity for spiritual work, inner progress, and intimacy with his true beloved, like the days of his stay on Malta. It was a true gift from Allah for achieving the stages of inner progress. The eternal writer made this journey and this imprisonment the means for achieving those stages he had fixed for him from eternity. And once achieved, he sent him to his homeland and then summoned him." So Walanna Hussein Ahmed, uh, who's a very apt student by now, learns Turkish while he's here and completes, finally, his of the Quran uh, and is really well known for showing and being esteemed by all the prisoners for having amazing compassion for them all. So another text from this amazing diary. So this is what he writes later on. Among these 3,000, some were Muslims, some Christians, some Jews, some Catholics, some were black, some white, some Eastern, some Western, some civilian, some military, some Asian, some African, some European, some Turkish, but trouble joined all in such a bond that each was ready to sacrifice his life, and in his heart, everyone breathed well-being for the other. This was an extraordinary vision, as if the differences of religion, nation, and homeland had completely disappeared from the human world, as if each was the other's real brother. Everyone viewed the English officers and soldiers with real anger, but looked at each prisoner with an eye of dignity and respect." So this goes on. uh, 11th of November, of course, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the armistice is signed, and the um, guns fall silent. Uh, They expect to be released because they're getting newspapers. They know what's going on, Uh, but the Arab Bureau in Cairo which is planning this new British-French suzerainty over the Middle East and is also interested in India, uh, because Aden is, for a long time, administered from, from Bombay, uh, decides not to release them, because they are undesirable uh, Indians and Mohammedan malcontents. They haven't actually been able to convict them of anything. It's just kind of hearsay, rumor, We think you were in this majlis with the Ottoman Pasha, and we think that you've been corresponding with Obaidullah Sindhi, and why did he send you this letter? But they they can't actually convict them of anything. In 1920, finally, because there's no evidence at all, and there's a lot of pressure coming from Indian Muslims, they are released. Uh, From Malta back to India, it takes them three months. Chaos after the war, the Middle East is an uproar. They didn't have any money. But they uh, met by a rapturous crowd, a welcoming party, at the docks in Bombay. Gandhi is there, uh, the Deobandi leaders, and also activists of a new movement called the Khilafat movement, which is an Indian Muslim movement concerned at British uh, and ultimately Kemalist plans to uh, abolish the uh, Khilafat itself in order to facilitate... British rule. Uh, He didn't go back to Medina, um, but his experience in prison has turned him into a kind of activist maulana. The Indian Muslims in this time of the Khilafat movement are very alienated by clear British anti-Ottomanism. Now, before this time, the idea of the caliph, the Khalifa, had never really been a very big idea in India. in, until the uh, early 16th century, the Delhi sultans, the Tornoks, and so forth, had had the Khalifa, the Abbasid Khalifa, who at this time was living in a kind of exile in a palace in Cairo, mentioned in khutbas, but otherwise it wasn't really a, a live principle. Um, and some of the the Mongol, the, the sultans had made caliphal claims for themselves, but they the list of titles was so gigantic Lord of the Sun and the Moon Lord of the the East and the West Master of the Horizons Master of uh, a Thousand Elephants by the time you got to Khalifa nobody was reading that far so it wasn't really part of their legitimation in the uh, Mughal world of course they were aware that it was a claim made by the Ottoman sultans, particularly in the 18th and 19th century as um, Ottoman military fortunes started to wane (coughs) so uh, the British then had this idea uh, that the Sharif Hussein could be induced to declare himself to be Khalifa and could then bring the whole Arab world and maybe the whole Islamic world into British allegiance. There are letters from him uh, that indicate this. It have been released in the uh, India Office Archives. So in 1919, something called the All India Khilafat Movement was founded out of anger at the kind of slicing up of the Arab world the Balfour Declaration, uh, what was going to happen to Palestine. Uh, And they were supported by Gandhi as well. And Maulana Mahmoud al-Hassan declared his support. Was given the title Sheikh al-Hind. And they uh, lent their weight to many of the early Gandhian campaigns of civil disobedience, not buying British products and um, not standing up when a European entered the, the room, that kind of thing. Um, partnered with a lot of other Muslims, including, interestingly, some uh, Cambridge-educated Muslims, somebody called Saifuddin. Uh, Kitchlow, I probably pronounced that wrongly, was at Peterhouse here in the uh, late 19th century. There was something called uh, the Cambridge Majlis here, which was founded in about 1891, for not just Muslim, but there were a lot of Muslims in it, Indian students who were in Cambridge, and they would get together and uh, uh, talk, society politics, talk about their aspirations. Later on, there was an Oxford magistrate as well. Um, uh, people like Maulana Yus- uh, Yusuf Ali, when he was in Cambridge, the translator of the Quran, who was at St. John's College. Uh, Iqbal uh, were all kind of, as it were, graduates of this circle of Cambridge-based uh, Muslim intellectuals. So uh, uh, this is an opportunity for the Maulana to engage with some of the more kind of Western-educated Muslims in India who are... Uh, often much more active as nationalists than the Olamat were, who tend to prefer the traditional uh, distance that the Olamat maintained from the sultan. Uh, so The British don't like this, and uh, in Karachi, he is uh, tried for anti-British agitation, and true to the, to the principles of uh, non-cooperation, uh, they refuse to stand for the judge uh, and they don't acknowledge the legitimacy of the court. And he gets sentenced to two years rigorous uh, imprisonment, which means that at night he's chained and the food is really bad. Um, he's released two years later, but then in 1924 the Khilafah is abolished by Ataturk and the movement kind of gets uh, a bit adrift. Uh, it, it staggers on for a few more years. but. Um, the, st- the wind has gone out of its sails and also uh, there's growing dissension between Hindus and Muslims and Muslim identity politics in India starts to take on a different tenor. Still, the moment he's out of prison, he resumes his anti-British preaching um, pointing particularly to the cynical carve-up of the Middle East uh, and he's preaching against communalism because he says that for the different groups in India, to uh, war on each other simply serves uh, British colonial interests because the Raj justifies itself as the white man's burden. If the white man goes, the Indians will all kill each other, as allegedly they did before. And similarly, he didn't like Sunni-Shi'i disputations, uh, which were uh, quite sharp at this time. He was very strong in his disagreement with the Shia, but he didn't like that to reflect itself in any kind of communalism. Malana Mahmoud al-Hassan passes away, uh, and he moves off to distant Silet in order to teach Hadith. He's always been really a, a man who is not afraid of discomfort and going to out-of-the-way places. Uh, and one of his great delights, according to his biographers, was just to go to villages and to talk about Islam, the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the lives of the, the great ones. And even if only half a dozen people came and kind of stood with their mouths open sort of on the way to the paddy fields. He'd be really happy. And that was, it is said, his, his greatest, greatest uh, delight. So a kind of tabligh is something that he starts as well. And he creates uh, a kind of India-wide organization for a kind of alim based re-Islamization because the Hindu militants uh, have been launching campaigns to bring very superficially Islamized populations back into Hinduism. Organizations like the Arya Samaj are sending missionaries essentially around the countryside um, to go to people who have Muslim names but may be only nominally Muslim and are in practice observing the Hindu calendar and Hindu deities to re assimilate them, the process of, 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 of Shuddhi back into Hinduism. So uh, movements like the Tablighi Jamaat and uh, <coughs> Moulana Hossein Madni's uh, organization are very much part of the pushing back against this uh, Hindu uh, militancy. And the organization also uh, tries to fight some un-Islamic practices. So he has this idea that the Muslim birth rate is smaller than the Hindu birth rate in India because Muslims marry later and because sometimes they don't marry at all. And the reason for that is cultural expectations about extravagant weddings. So he issues a series of fatwas indicating what a true Islamic wedding should be and that the money you save should be used to establish yourself in a business or some other um, halal form of income. And uh, that's one of the things that he is uh, remembered for. Uh, Of course, he's still very much in the Deobandi orbit uh, the head of uh, Darul Ulum Deoband, uh, molana Anwar Shah Kashmiri goes off to establish another big Darul Ulum in Gujarat. And molana Hussein Ahmed is invited to take his place and be the, the Grand Rector of this um, extraordinarily prestigious institution. Uh, he doesn't particularly want to do it, but he says, if you agree to my 27 conditions, all right, I will, I will come. And one of those conditions is that will not stand aloof from anti-British campaigning in India. So the kind of quietest to be sidelined. And he also includes other conditions such as he says, haven't seen this in a recent academic uh, contract. If I happen to miss a lecture, uh, the regulations must specify that uh, that is to be deducted from my salary. So it's the kind of purist uh, approach. And they say, all right. And they let him in, and he becomes, uh, uh, rises to this position of considerable eminence. Now, uh, the ulama by this time are being contested in their claim to be the natural leaders of the ummah by different kinds of organizations. You've got the Muslim League starting up with Jinnah, who is this Lincoln's Inn uh, educated, very anglicized. Um, Uh, individual who, as far as anybody can tell, is not particularly religiously observant and is really more at home with sort of anglicised and British elites than with uh, traditional Muslims, uh, with a kind of nationalistic idea. And then you have uh, uh, Iqbal's idea of a kind of romantic Muslim nationalism, uh influenced by all of the ideas and visions and sometimes quite interesting insights that he picked up here in Cambridge and elsewhere uh, and like Jinnah he's not really at ease with uh, the Olamat and then you've got Maldodi, who more or less openly disrespects the Olamat um, and says that they are obscurantists and that they have veiled the shining face of the Qur'an and the hadith with all of their hair-splitting disputations. And that he, Maldodi, writes that because of an inner light, he is able to tell whether a hadith is strong or weak just by looking at it. He doesn't need to go to all of the ulama's yellow books about jarh and ta'dil and assessing isnad he can tell spontaneously. And this, of course, completely short circuits the whole um, traditional mechanisms of Islamic uh, scholarship. So there's these three groups who are Muslim groups that are kind of not on side with the, the ulama and competing with them for popularity. Um, most of the ulama groupings uh, are uh, aligning themselves with Congress and the movement for sort of Indian national liberation against the the, the British, the Majlisi Ahrar, which is a big group in most of its territories are now in what's called uh, Pakistan nowadays, which is very much a kind of poor relief type uh, scholars, activist organization, very much in the Chishti uh, tradition, um, and were particularly active in upholding the, uh, the rights of Muslims in Kashmir, which was a Muslim majority province, but under a Hindu Raja and they were historically quite, uh, quite browbeaten. And then you've got the famous movement of Abdul Ghaffar, Abdul Ghaffur Khan, uh, amongst the Pathans, who improbably for a Pathan, creates a kind of Islamic pacifism uh, in order to resist the, the British. Um, but the Muslim League is the group that seems to be growing fast, even though uh, Jinnah's natural habitat tends to be with with The aristocrats. So, Junna is talking to westernized intellectuals, aristocrats, and princes from the princely states, whereas the Olamas support tends to come uh, from the grassroots. Um, uh, The British are also uh, emphasizing that their role in India is to, as it were, be referees between two competing teams, and that uh, but for the referee, the rules would be cast aside and mayhem would ensue and they do a lot to uh, promote uh, particularly the uh, the the zealous sides of uh, hindu nationalism and muslim nationalism Um, the story is still coming out but it's becoming evident now that uh, whitehall's role was uh, quite a nefarious one at a time when churchill for instance was absolutely determined and desperate that uh, India would remain the jewel in the crown so in 1937 Hussein Ahmed Madni writes a book Mutahid al Qawmiyat Aur Islam which is an interesting document in that it is really written from a very classical Hanafi Maturidi perspective explaining uh, what Islam actually could make of nationalism uh, which is the dominant ideology in the world at the time whether of the left or of the right and certainly the way in which anti-colonialism was expressing itself. If the movement against the British in India is a nationalism, what should be the role of the ulama when nationalism is something that comes out of the European experience? Uh, What on earth can be our role in this? Do we just go along with it? Can we find ways of justifying it in the Quran or the Sunnah? Or do we have to oppose it? or do we have an alternative uh, vision? So he, he proposes a kind of alternative vision. And he is very much targeting these uh, different voices, Iqbal, um, Jinnah, and also Mawdudi, uh, who he sees as people who are speaking for Islam, but not really with a sufficient knowledge base and a sufficient uh, authorization. Uh, and continuity with the classical past. So in many ways, it's a restatement of the, the classical, even medieval Islamic understanding of how government works. Um, and Iqbal writes a poem attacking him. He's quite sick by this time, he dies the next year, but he writes a Persian poem in which he calls the head of Darul Al-Norm, Deoband, uh, the Abu Lahab of the time because he 's apparently opposing the way of the Holy Prophet, which is about the Muslims and the Ummah and the traditional way, uh, but uh, and then he writes a counter refutation and his basically his his understanding in India because by this time things are looking quite uh, dire, and he certainly doesn 't want the region to be divided the way the British divided the Middle East, which seems to be the usual. British policy uh, in power and when leaving power, you just divide it up into smaller bits and uh, step back and watch the fun. But uh, uh, his view is that if you look at the classical Islamic sources and set aside journalistic or philosophical or nationalistic considerations, you find that there are three principles that should be guiding the ulama looking at this. Do we stay with the British? Do we stay with United India? Do we support the idea of cutting India up into Muslim and Hindu bits? There's three points he says. Firstly, the Sunnah validates alliances with non-Muslims. So he talks about the famous constitution of Medina that the Holy Prophet forged with the Jews when he arrived there. There's plenty of other examples. You can collaborate politically with non-Muslims. Secondly, Muslims are people of uh, faithfulness who keep their promises, and our honourable neighbours. And thirdly, the Muslims belong in India. Hindu nationalists and a certain British narrative regard them as legacies of outsider conquest. But actually, they are locals. This is Hindustan, is their country, and the landscape is full of mosques and zawiyas and graveyards. And it's Hindustan. Um, Muslims are not kind of camping out so uh, his arguments are religious arguments the islamic arguments uh, and his concern is that partition would divide the muslims into maybe three different bits but unite the hindus so in an attempt to avoid hindu predominance in the region uh, it would actually cement it uh, because it would be the muslims who would be divided and the hindus who would be united um and he also has an aside at maldodi who he calls mean, he's never really abusive he doesn't call anybody abu lahab but maldodi he calls a journalist a writer of articles and editorials um who should not be giving fatwas nobody's authorized him to give fatwas so this uh idea of partition to him looks as if it's going to leave the Muslims in the lurch and destabilize the region the way the British destabilized the French destabilized the Middle East. And his bitter experience of seeing the the, the consequences of the First World War in the Middle East probably informed this, this view. Second World War happens, and the future of British rule becomes even more ambiguous. Subhas Chandra Bose has taken a bit of the Indian Army to side with the Japanese in the hope that a Japanese-sponsored Indian independence would be the best thing for uh, the subcontinent. There's, there's thousands of them, and they're just waiting in Burma to cross the border into Assam. The idea being that the Indian population will then rise up against the white man and uh, uh, welcome the joint Japanese uh, Indian liberators, which could have happened. Could have happened. Um, the British were really unpopular particularly given the manipulations of the bengal famine in 1942 which is worth reading about Uh, basically uh, the story of the bengal famine is that in order to prevent the japanese from landing on the coasts of eastern india uh, the british destroyed the infrastructure of the coasts uh, and they also diverted grain ships Uh, away from India to go to Britain and also a stockpile for a putative Allied invasion of the Balkans. Uh, So Britain was not hungry during the Second World War, despite all the U-boat attacks, but um, several million Indians basically in in Bengal, uh, disproportionately Muslims, died as a result of those uh, uh, manipulations. So people are, you know, if, if you look out of the window of the train and there's people starving children and corpses around. You tend to think twice about the alleged civilizing benefits of colonial rule. And indeed, there hasn't been a famine in India since independence. Where are the imperial arguments? So uh, the Muslims have decided uh, or that uh, a decision has to be taken. Is it going to be United Hindustan with Muslims at about 25 or 30% of the population? Or is the continent to be divided, which tends to be the British preference partly as a way of saying, I told you so. 1940, the Lahore Resolution calls for partition. Um, and Osein uh, uh, Ahmed Madani continues with his polemic. He tends to be more strongly anti-British, but also strongly out anti-British partition and you can see in his writings at this time anxieties about the nature of modernity itself the technology when weaponized is infinitely more threatening than anything human beings have seen before and that the breakdown in order would be uh, unbelievably uh, uh, calamitous so he writes about Hindustan as a Muslim land and as the his, of the historic responsibility of Muslims to remain everywhere in the land in order to continue the Chishti process of proselytization and converting people he even has a theory that because of Adam's peak in Ceylon Sri Lanka uh, the first human being on earth was actually in India but was a person of Tawheed so in a sense the Muslims were in India before the Hindus came along So to say, as the Hindu nationalists did, that Muslims are kind of foreigners uh, doesn't really make much sense. The Muslims are the original Indians, and the virtue in India is all prophetic. It comes from the Nur-Muhammadi. He also has an interesting argument, I'm not quite sure what to make of it, that when Indians die, if they're Hindus, they're cremated, and they kind of leave the earth. But when Muslims die, they're buried in the land of India, and therefore the land is kind of full of <laughs> Muslims, it's Muslim land, but. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so, more attacks on Maldudi as a kind of uh, philosopher and somebody who's unwilling to understand that, that so much of Islam is about the recognition of local particularities, the orphan, the ada, was Maldudi tends to be purist and ideological. Um, so, Maldudi says, a non Muslim can never lead Muslims. I remember, Maldudi's been brought up in the. the Nizam of Hyderabad's domains, where the Nizam is ruling a substantially non-Muslim population, so he's used to that scenario. Then the Maulana says, well, does that mean that you could never have, for instance, uh, a non-Muslim head of the post office or a non-Muslim headmaster in a school or a non-Muslim anything with any position of authority? Uh, He just doesn't accept it. And as for the idea of Islamic rule, an Islamic government, an Islamic state, he goes through it very meticulously and says, there is no consensus amongst the ulama as to how the ideal form of government for Muslims should be. But one thing that you cannot have is the idea of Islamic law becoming enacted as statutory law because the sharia doesn't work like that. If you're westernized, you assume Islamic law is like British law and the legislature enacts it and it becomes the law of the land, but the Sharia doesn't operate like that because uh, it is not state law, and it's not one of the capacities of the, of the sultan to enact legislation. Uh, we saw this when we talked about Abu Saul Defendi and how limited were the actual powers of the Ottoman sultan, which is counterintuitive, but it is the case. The Sharia is a, is a local communal uh, guild-based bottom-up type of legislation that doesn't have any kind of overarching control from above. So he's uh, having a go at what we now call Islamists on those grounds as well. So he gets angry and he writes tracts like an open letter to the Muslim League. What is the Muslim League? What is Pakistan? He talks about Jinnah's Islamic uh, inauthenticity and how his culture is basically British rather than uh, Islamic. But not all the ulama agree with him. Uh, Shabir Ahmed Osmani and others think that things are going to get so bad that we do need our independent Pakistan and partition is the only way. So in 1947, uh, he lives to the horrors, uh, incredible uh, cy- cyclone of uh, partition, uh, millions massacred on both sides, and he sees uh, uh, people getting on trains, leaving Delhi, and their children left behind. And 70% of the Muslim population of Delhi leaves. But he doesn't leave. He urges patience. He's a Sabri, after all. Um, And together with uh, Maulana Zakaria Kandahlawi, they issue a proclamation urging Muslims not to leave Delhi. This is the great Muslim city with the great mosques and the great shrines and Nizamuddin, Awliya, and that whole infrastructure. How can you abandon it? How can you leave it to others? But still, most Muslims in Delhi leave. And as in Hyderabad and a lot of (coughs) other formerly Muslim-shaped places in the subcontinent, they're now kind of sad places um, abandoned. Partition takes place nonetheless, uh, despite his uh, intentions. And uh, he then turns Darul Ulam Deoband into something less political. The British are gone. Uh, and he focuses more on uh, trying to uplift the remaining Indian Muslims to a reform of Akhlaq and Ilm uh, and becomes a sort of significant but not political figure in the early years of uh, independent India. Um, 1955, he makes his last Hajj Um, and uh, just uh, two years before his death and he's able to go back via Lahore, via Pakistan, uh, to visit his his pupils. Um, and then he goes on, because the borders were open in those days, uh, back to Deoband And I'm going to end with a quote that indicates that despite the politics and everything, he really should be seen as a selfless Sufi murshid. So this is one of the narratives of his train journey <coughs> back from <coughs> Uh, back from his hajj, uh, this is from one of his uh, editors. When Hazrat Maulana Madani returned from his final hajj, we came to the station in Lahore for the honor of seeing him. Sharaf Among those in relationship with him was Saab Muhammad Arif from district Jang, which is in the Punjab, who accompanied him as far as Deoband, And he told me the following story. On the train, there was also a Hindu gentleman who experienced a call of nature and went to attend to it. Clearly unhappy, he came right back. If you've been to public toilets in that part of the world, you'll understand where he came back and he was still uncomfortable. Anyway, Hazrat Maulana Madani understood what had happened and immediately gathered some empty cigarette packets and a jug of water and went and cleaned the toilet. Then he said to the Hindu man, Please go, the toilet is clean, perhaps because it was night you couldn't see it properly. And the youth said, Molana, I saw how the toilet was, but he got up and went. He found the toilet was indeed completely clean. He was much moved and with great conviction said, your honour's chuzor, kindness, cherishing of servants is beyond comprehension. And there's so many stories that are told about him of that kind, which kind of indicates what sort of person uh, the alim who is properly inflected by the Sulaq of, of tasawwuf can be complete selflessness and complete lack of self-regard, but concern for others. Uh, but of course, his vision of a united Hindustan, in which Islam would continue to progress, didn't take place. Uh, we don't know what the end game will look like, but with uh, both sides bristling with nuclear warheads and nationalists uh, louder than ever on both sides, things are looking a little bit ominous, but in any case, uh, history is in Allah's hands, but it is as well to bear in mind uh, the struggles of that uh, generation, lest we think that religion, an uh, authentic ulama religion in its highest form, is about dichotomy and polarisation, because it isn't. Uh, uh, Adam is uh, Indian as well. So, thank you very much. I've got to travel shortly, but uh, inshallah, I will see you all for the next uh, instalment of these uh, leadership lectures. Cambridge Muslim College, training the next generation of Muslim thinkers.